Artificial intelligence is here. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Daniel Lopez. This is the AI Education Conversation, where we explore the opportunities, risks, and the impacts of AI across education. Let's jump in. Happy Monday, everyone. Really excited to share with you another episode of the AI Ed Combo. In this week's episode, I have the opportunity to actually sit down with a colleague and a friend, Gavin Smith. Gavin is the head of school for Boston Latin Academy uh, in Boston Public Schools, and that's actually one of the top performing high schools in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Gavin and I, you know, we've crossed paths many times and prior, and, you know, one thing that I've always really enjoyed about working with Gavin and just his experiences in education is he's always trying to find really new, cool ways to create innovative opportunities for his students to just see new things in the world and have new opportunities outside of the school through partnerships, through community partnerships. So really excited to share that interview with you all today and share our conversation. Before we do, wanted to just share a little bit of updates in the the world of AI. The last couple of weeks, a big theme that we've highlighted in this show is that much of the rumblings have been around privacy and regulation. This week, I noticed that the U.S. government appears to be ramping up their role in the world of AI as well. Most notably, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is leading a congressional charge to regulate AI as the industry booms. Schumer has circulated a framework for future AI regulations, which he said would help avert potentially catastrophic damage to our country while simultaneously making sure the U.S. advances and leads in this transformative technology. Now, in particular, what I understood the proposal to be outlining is that it's going to require companies, AI companies, to allow independent experts to evaluate and test out AI technologies before they're released publicly. It reportedly involves four guardrails to ensure responsible AI, which include identifying who trained the algorithms, the AI's data source, an explanation for the outputs, and then ethical boundaries. So nothing has been passed just yet. This is all conversations right now. And like I said, he's passing out a proposal for doing it. But this proposal really stands out as like one big concrete notable first step towards creating regulation on generative AI and, you know, amid a lot of these concerns that have been coming out there. No legislation is currently drafted. And so we'll kind of see in the next couple of uh, months here how this plays out. Definitely has me thinking you know, these recent, alongside some of the privacy updates that I've shared in the last couple of episodes, it continues to bring up this question for me of to what degree do we actually feel like we need established regulators like governments or other bodies to uh, regulate AI, um, especially given how fast it's continuing to emerge. As always, I'm going to continue to highlight developments regarding privacy, regulation, and anything else that I find really interesting and connected to AI and education in particular on this. Anyways, let's uh, jump into my conversation with Gavin. So, you know, in my conversation with Gavin, I was really struck by two critical questions that I'm, I'm also still thinking about and trying to make sense of as we integrate AI into education further and continue investing in this technology. The first question I was left really thinking about was, you know, we know representation matters tremendously in education, right? Students need to have exposure to teachers that share common identity markers such as culture, such as race. There have been many studies as an example that highlights how this plays out when black and brown male students 
have access to black and brown male teachers, right? It, it tends to have like overwhelmingly positive impacts for those students. But today, nationally, less than 10% of the teachers are black and brown male teachers. So in a world of AI, it's got me thinking, how does the representation uh, element of education play out there when AI doesn't have a face, AI doesn't have a background, and students may end up spending an increasing amount of time interacting with AI in various ways. The second thing that my conversation with Gavin prompted for me was thinking about, as we specifically think about the implementation and the rollout of AI, which to this point I think seems to be pretty limited. There's not a lot of schools massively rolling out uh, significant AI tools in that way, but it, it is something that can happen, I think, to more significant places down the line. How are we going to ensure that when this does happen and when the time comes, it doesn't only end up in the hands of well-resourced schools, but that public schools and marginalized communities in particular also have access to meaningful AI? There's a lot more to dig into on these topics, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts and reactions to today's episode also. So as always, feel free to share them on our Twitter, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gavin Smith. There he is. Hey, hey. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing well. Can't complain. Excellent, excellent. I love those uh, beautiful portraits behind you. I'm trying. Gotta gotta always send a reminder. I see one that looks like a martial artist. Is that is that accurate? The one to my right. Kung Fu Kenny. Oh, Kendrick Lamar. Awesome. <laughs> Kung Fu Kenny. Yes, indeed. <laughs> How are you doing today? How are you enjoying this beautiful weather? I just got to be outside for the first time today. About seven minutes ago oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> but that's good and uh, i had congresswoman Ayanna presley at the school today so um, oh, wow. that was good and we're uh, gearing up for our our trip to atlanta and alabama for our hbcu tour also uh, had some families come through and did SATs. so it was a pretty big day for us today Wow, it's amazing. Are, what groups of students are going down to see some HBC? You all doing like the Morehouse yep, spelling? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so our 11th graders, about 20 11th graders, and we're doing it in collaboration with the Dearborn STEM Academy and BLS. So we get three different three different schools trying to build community in ways that you know kids aren't too used to, or tip, it's not typical in Boston these days. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, I know on my team all the time, we talk about how, you know, in the Northeast, there's just not really any type of HBCU representation for students who want that option. And I can imagine just like going down there, group of 20 students who don't know each other too well, you get to see schools with like all black students or major uh, majority black students. They're going to come back totally different. People oh, yeah. In some ways. <laughs> you know, I did this tour like four or five years ago. And I had that experience. I had the experience like, man, I should have gone to Morehouse, you know, and I, I've never sort of really, I don't regret going to Northeastern, but that was the first time I thought about like, what if I had gone somewhere, somewhere else and that somewhere else not being like a Georgetown or Harvard, which is where I wanted to go as a kid. So, yeah, somewhere else, but like totally different yeah. uh, culture and climate in terms of exactly. social experience. Yeah, and just thinking about who you'd, who you'd be as a person. And uh, yep. well, knowing you, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think you'd, you'd probably end up still in the same place, probably serving kids, yeah. doing fighting the good fight, but maybe an interesting trajectory to get there. Exactly. Huh? <laughs> For sure. 
I'd, I'd love to just start from the beginning. And I mean, I don't, I don't even know too much about this myself, so I'm excited to dig in further. We got to hear a little bit on the college side there, but how'd you, how'd you end up a headmaster? Like what was your passion as into education and how'd you get there? You know, uh, I think, I think the question about how to end up in education is a little bit different than how to become a headmaster. I ended up in education sort of cause it, I think it was, it was always there. I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, you know, when you're a smart black man, like doing black, young black youth achieving in school, um, you know, people start to write your ticket. I still go home, you know, or I still go back to and see people from Northeastern where I went to college and people are like, Gab, you're not a doctor. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that narrative was created for me pretty early on, but there was also sort of the narrative that was beneath the surface. And I was the, I'm the oldest of four children and my mother often got us involved in, in activities. I'm older than my sister by about six years. We couldn't necessarily be in the same classes, but my mom didn't always have the means to be a person who would, would sit and wait for three, four hours until it was my sister's turn to go or my turn to go. So I kind of became the help for whatever organizations we were doing, whether it was like piano or music lessons or swimming. Pretty early on, I, I got a knack for helping people, helping youth. And I studied neuroscience in college thinking that I was going to go the doctoral path, right? Be, be a PhD, be a doctor, um, be the next Ben Carson. And it was in that space that I realized that that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work with kids, but I didn't know in what capacity. Thankfully for the, through Northeastern, they had this co-op program, you know, and I was able to sort of really flesh out what I wanted to do. I did a co-op with Citizen Schools in Massachusetts. Um, I was Gavin at the Gavin, and I did a co-op uh, working with children with brain injuries. And those were probably the two most influential experiences of my life. But being a child of immigrants, I was still grappling with how do I make money? How do I escape poverty? How do I make my mother proud, right? And what I understood that to mean is a level of financial freedom that wouldn't bring me back to the same circumstances that I grew up in, because that's not what she wanted for me. So I went on to think about pursuing like a biomedical engineering path, took some classes my off year and realized it was not really what I wanted to do either. Uh, and I was on a walk, really, a long walk in the city. And I stopped by Simmons and I just pretty much read my resume to the guy who I was told was in charge of the educational program. And I was like, you know, I graduated from Northeastern last year, majored in neuroscience, thinking about teaching, have this experience. And he's like, sign up right now. Um, and, and that's how I became a teacher. You know, so I, I think many of the things that I needed to know to be a teacher were ingrained in me. And then the leadership opportunity was was simple. I think I had I hadn't outgrown teaching, but I, I wanted more from teaching. And I was looking for opportunities to 
get more from teaching. And what ended up happening were the opportunities that I were I was looking at. I didn't see people who looked like me at all. So I was seeing all of these fellowships, all of these prestigious programs, and there weren't people who represented myself there. And just the person I am, that that motivated me, right? I, I said that these spaces do not need to continue to look like this. So I applied to about three or four programs. One was the Lynch Principal Fellowship at BC. I applied to a fellowship in DC. And I actually, my students had nominated me for Teacher of the Year two years in a row. And the first year I didn't accept the nomination because I was kind of like, you know, what is this? Um, but the second year I saw sort of, I started researching and I saw uh, folks who had won in years past. And I was like, again, there's no representation here. So I, I was a finalist for Teacher of the Year in Massachusetts that year. And in that process, you have an interview. And I think the purpose of that interview was to sort of talk about your teaching practice and you know, your data, why, what makes you qualified to do that, to be the teacher of the year in Massachusetts. And I chose to teach, talk about exactly what I'm talking to y'all about. I think you know me by now, and I don't use my platform for uh, what it's intended to be used for always. And what I, I just talked about, I need to see more teachers in this profession or more educators in this profession who look like me. And if you all want this to be true, then your way of recruiting and retaining us needs to look different. Um, so I was able to do some real solid work for about a year and a half on that. And I also, in the process of doing that, got into the Lynch Principal Fellowship. Prior to that, I hadn't really considered school leadership. I'll be honest, I, I had done teacher leadership work, but didn't really consider being a school leader and I'm sure there are many reasons or things to that, but it wasn't really something that I saw myself as. And, you know, Lynch sort of affirmed that the qualities that you have, the things that we see in you are the things that we are looking for, uh, for educators and for school leaders. Um, and, and they kind of sold that to me. I talked to a lot of my mentors and they were saying that it was the next logical step in the journey. So I decided to take the leap. It wasn't an easy thing for me to do because I still think that my time in the classroom is my all time favorite. I'm, I'm somebody different around young people, you know, and, and I know that about me. I know how I build community with young people. Uh, I know how important that is to me and how I light up when I'm around those people and how I want to see uh, them be better and, and do all of the things they want to do in life and how I see myself in them. I made that decision recognizing that I could do more. I had the capacity to do more with that position that I thought was power at the time. Now I know it's a lot more than that, right? Uh, I think that's what led me to, to being a principal. Yeah, thanks for sharing. You got my mind in like a thousand different places right now. And I would just try to calm that as much as I can to just say that your represent representation piece resonates with me so much because I was recently in a fellowship session for 
an experience that I'm doing with NCAN with a, a college access network. And the facilitator had asked me a question that kind of uh, uns- disturbed me a little bit recently. And I, you know, very, I grew up in Southern California in a predominantly black and Latino community. And, you know, most of my entire upbringing was in public schools until I went to Boston University, right? Mm-hmm. And that was my first time going to private institution. And the facilitator had asked, how many uh, black teachers have you been taught by over your career? And I really thought about it. I was like, dang, the answer is zero. I've never actually had a black teacher. And then she had asked how many Latino teachers. And it was like two. And mind you, again, this is, I grew up in a predominantly black and Latino uh, Southern California community. And so your piece about representation, I think is really hits me hard. And I know it's something that in a lot of educator circles is, is continuing to be talked about a lot, but to your point, there's still so much work to be done in terms of even just attracting creating the conditions we need to be able to sustain and make that a viable career for, for people of color who oftentimes don't have the resources of, of affluent peers to, you know, afford a a master's degree or pay for these certifications or any of these other things that come up in addition to any other barriers that may have be happening in people's lives. So I'm just holding on to that. What I'm curious to hear a little bit, oftentimes when you're a school leader, Mike's and this has been my experience too, as I've gotten into you know, director role, senior director role, and been in more managerial positions, oftentimes what they don't tell you about those positions is they're kind of lonely. You know, there's not always this like network that you have of peers or colleagues that you can work for. And then I think as you get into that, Russell, you, you identify spaces to be able to do that. But what would you say are some of the things that you've learned or maybe didn't expect at all about either the challenges or the opportunities that exist within your role as schoolmaster of, you know, one of the top schools in, in the country, if, you know, if in, definitely in the state that maybe you didn't know about going in? Oh, it's a, it's a house of cards. I think the people aspect is, is so important. And similar to you, I grew up in a highly Black, black and Lat, Latino populated city community. And um, many of my experiences prior to my you know, my schooling, my uh, higher ed schooling was primarily with folks that looked like me and folks that oriented to many different situations in the same way that I do. And I think for me, I wouldn't necessarily call it code switching because it is something that I have just done throughout my life because it was sort of the thing that my mom stressed upon me, right? You will talk a certain way, you will um, dress a certain way, you will be a certain way, you will be perfect, um, is, is often, you know, how I describe it, but you will be perfect in your black body. And, and that's also the, the piece that is really important in your black body, right? Now, don't let anybody else define that for you. We are defining that for you and we're cultivating um, that for you and your 17 years in, in my household. But that is, don't let anybody call you outside of your name, right? And I think I've come into a space where people don't share those perspectives often. And people look for reasons to put others in boxes and define them in ways, you know. I think there there's being a school leader. There's being a male school leader. There's being a black male school leader. There's being a young black male school leader. And I think each time you step away from what people consider proximity to power, it's like a, it's a knock of a peg. And it, it's really 
interesting because the way that I was raised was like, none of that matters, right? You're going to do it because like you come from greatness. But I think in leadership, I've learned that it, it does matter and that those relationship building pieces are really important. The ability to bring people on, um, especially when for me, I think the words people use are like, you're a social justice or a civil rights leader. Um, you know, I very much view my position as a position of civil rights, right? Working in schools where uh, over 50% of my students are marginalized in some way, right? It's, it's a civil rights piece. And um, being able to push and advocate for those things with people who don't always believe the same things that you do and don't always have the same passion or proximity to the pain that I do or that you do, I think has been some of the hardest things to overcome, just the overall system, right? I think we talk about what, what does the work look like to overcome systems? And I've always known that that's the work that I'm tasked with doing in this, but I, I never, I'm now realizing as I get deeper into the system, it's like Neo in the matrix, right? You kind of, you're like, whoa, this is, this is beyond anything that I could have ever imagined. And I, I experienced that, I experienced that daily, you know, so I can, I can find commonalities with many people in the work, but I think it's about finding commonalities with all people in the work in my position and using those co commonalities to move us towards a common goal. And, and that's tough. You know, that, that, is, that is really tough. Um, but I'm thankful for my network of people um, because you are right. It, it is lonely and it's particularly lonely when you're, when you're fighting for something, you know, I'll, I'll say that I think is good fighting for the, the livelihood of young people who look like you and I um, and who deserve the opportunities that you and I have, you know, you, you start to realize that not everybody truly believes that there should be equal access and not everybody is willing to go um, beyond their means by any means necessary to give students or families access to some of these things, right? And Sometimes that could be hurtful. Sometimes you can be in the system and, and really question some of those things. So I think that for me, those have really been uh, the hardest parts. And I think also the ways people force me to look at myself and society uh, while doing the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely just a lot of what you said resonates. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, to your point. Leadership, I think, as you get into it, that Neo in the Matrix <laughs> analogy is, I think, is so spot on. You oftentimes, when you're younger, can think, you know, there's this intentional group of people that are actively out there trying to bring down everyone and everything that's out there. And part of that may be partially true. There may be some people out there that are very much, uh, you know, actively working against even oppressing right people, people of color lower income people. But oftentimes, I think as you get into leadership, what you also find is that oftentimes it's not actually people that are not invested. It's systems, systems that are designed and policies that are designed in a way that actively and implicitly oppress people in, in various and different ways. And your job as a leader in many ways is to untangle all of those things and to also 
build connections and values across a lot of people with a lot of different interests and values and priorities than your own and trying to make that all move in one direction, which can be super, super hard. So I think uh, I very much you know, resonate with, with that perspective. I think we're now in a season in education in particular where we've had a lot of monkey wrenches thrown at us, right? First, it was the pandemic. And now I would argue at least that I think we're we're headed towards a, a season here where another very large monkey wrench, I think, is about to be thrown at education. And I think people are going to be adapting, responding to, or actively transforming as a result in different ways. And what I mean by that is AI. And I'm just curious to hear how, when, you know, when tools, when AI tools have come out, such as ChatGPT or any other tools that you've, like, what was your initial reaction? And what are you, what are you thinking about some of those things now? What's coming up for I'm, you? I'm a big reader and sort of, um, passive unintentionally around many of these things, but I remember specifically to chat GPT, it was just sort of the opening of Pandora's box, right? It was, this is a, this is a tool that, that can think for us and, and do some really powerful things, make work, uh, sort of not how we've always thought of it. And I think there were many articles that were sort of just shoved down my throat and conversations that were um, had initially. And I remember the piece that stuck out to me the most was around sort of who gets access to these things first. And of course, as we talk about systems, right, it, it was the rich, the affluent, uh, well-to-do, people, young people, the, the folks um, in private industry. And we think about sort of the gap in technology use amongst youth and um, the wealth disparities in America and access to, to different things. And that, that was one of the first thoughts I had, right? Uh, here's another thing that's going to be utilized in certain communities um, or brought to certain communities to help enhance the things that they're doing and in other communities, they may not, they may not hold the same weight or be thought of in the same ways. Cause the early conversations I was having with folks who I knew in education and grad schools, whether they were at Harvard or UPenn were around just that, how folks were talking about how to use them in communities or how to bring chat GPT to uh, communities of wealth. And, you know, my immediate response to that wasn't, wow, this is such a bad thing. It was actually like, well, we need to make sure that these marginalized communities are getting the same access or getting access to it first. And since then, I've been able to delve deeper into sort of, you know, what it, what it is learning about folks that are fighting against the usage of it and you building other technology to, to help people you know, better understand or better see uh, when things like chat GPT and the predecessors are being used, you know, like um, how do you spot chat GPT in an essay or schoolwork, right? So, you know, I think it's uh, technology is something that we are just never going to catch up with. We're entering some real dangerous territory um, with, with technology but we're also in an age as, as human beings where we embrace many of these things. 
And I don't want to see chat GPT as sort of a deficit, you know, or something that's going to, to ruin society, but really trying to think about ways to, to view it positively. And I think my students um, and sometimes some faculty have helped me with some of those conversations. And I think as you're thinking about it now, what what if you're leaning into like your sense of opportunity hat, have there been like any low lift ways or ways that you think is something like a chat GPT or AI in general could be leveraged within your school to actually help reduce inequity rather than exacerbate it? Yes, I've, I've had um, some students um, and faculty even share sort of, I, I have difficulty writing or processing information and being able to put in a topic or talk through a draft and then putting it into a system like ChatGPT really helps me formulate my thoughts or gives me a baseline to, to do something and do it well. You know, and of course there's, we, we've got to spend time proving this and, you know, really thinking through how this is possible. Um, but when I hear things like that and hear it used as an asset for sometimes I know Young people really cannot write or do not write. They, some, some people say things better, do things through different modalities. I can see some potential benefits in that. You know, I can, I can see some, some potential benefits and we ask kids to outline, right? Like if, if they can get some tools like that so they can be successful in school, why not, right? I, I'm not necessarily saying plagiarize. I, I think we need to ensure that our young people or all people um, have the freedom of thought, right? And, and they know how to, to actualize some of the things that they're saying. But we also need to be mindful of sort of the shifts in society and be able to use those to our advantage. Uh, so I, I think we're sort of towing on this line right now uh, where there, is a, there are a lot of people that live in fear of what's to come with ChatGPT um, but there, there are some people who are seeing the potential benefits uh, to a system like ChatGPT as well. And I'm, I'm holding like what you just said also with, with something we were talking about earlier around representation. And at first I will say that I hadn't exactly thought about these two things as being kind of in a paradigm with each other. But it seems to me that ChatGPT does also provide an opportunity for us to support teachers, in particular our first generation teachers of color with not burning yeah. out right as quickly. If you have tools and technology like ChatGPT that allow you to individualize or personalize like so many different uh, learning styles as well as levels of where students are at, maybe that makes it to where the teaching profession feels more sustainable. And then we, we can create more diversity in the classrooms. And it's not only, you know, affluent high schools where students are all at, at, at a higher achieving level that can retain teachers. And it, it, even at more um, Title I type schools, we can retain teachers, ensure that they're not having to do seven different jobs in a classroom because there's such varying needs with, you know, some of the students that they're serving. So it makes me feel like that in addition to like significant policy where we're also honoring teachers, compensating them for their performance, maybe that does allow us to increase representation in, in the classroom as yeah. well. I'm also curious to hear a little bit about when you think about um, the last couple of months, how have, how has the... AI, ChatGPT been received in kind of like maybe this, your school community as well as like your district community? How's that, how has like BPS been talking about this? I don't know what kind of conversation folks are having, to be honest with you. 
around it. I know in my school community, I've heard conversations of fear, right? So we, we sat, uh, we had sort of a coffee hours or after school office hours with the head of school and the leadership team. And the conversation came up, what are we going to do about this? And I, was just, I just wanted to listen. A lot of times you learn best by listening. So I, I heard a lot of fear and panic around what what is this new thing coming to us? And while kids are already using it and, you know, we can't just let them use it and, and not turn in assignments. And I'm like, kids have been cheating on assignments for forever, right? Like, especially at a school like this, <laughs> you know, that yeah. that's a skill that you, you probably have to learn to survive here. And it's not that I am saying... I embrace cheating, but it's been happening in in lots of other ways, right? So I think the goal is to either create thought where folks don't feel that that's that's what they have to do to get good grades or teach them the skills to, to use the tools that you're providing them so that they can use them to their advantage. And we don't really look at conversations that way, but you know, I, I definitely think it's necessary. I can't tell you when I truly learned to write an essay, right? When I truly learned to write paragraphs. It was probably 10th, 11th grade where I truly started understanding, you know, how, how writing worked. And then now as a school leader, you know, I understand not only how writing works, but how writing to certain audiences works, right? And um, the things that I can and cannot say, even in my speech to, to certain people, you know, so I think that those skills have, have evolved to a place where if I were to put something in chat GPT, I probably wouldn't trust it anyway, right? Because mm-hmm. they don't have all of the, the human aspects. You can spit out something that may, may read well to certain populations, to the majority, right? But might not read well to BPS parents or BLA parents, right? And, and that's the piece that I think I continue to think about. In my head, I'm thinking about, watched a documentary a while ago around facial recognition, right? And that's something that we all just use now. It's on our iPhone. It's, on, it's in a lot of different places. But the documentary was talking about how the tool was used by law enforcement in Europe and how there were often cases of mistaken identity and often with Black people, right? And how that technology was flawed and skewed and, and impacted certain demographics negatively. And I, I think if in, you know, let's say BPS, we view it as a negative and a school like Pingree or, you know, one of these really expensive private schools views it as a positive, right, then we're we're creating some similar kinds of inequities. And I think society and schools need to get on a similar page about how they think about this. But conversations in education haven't been around chat GPT. They are still on focusing on how to get out of the pandemic and how to help students refocus on learning. Uh, So I I think we aren't even in a space in education where we're really creating space for these types of 
conversations and to think really rationally about what our next steps are. Yeah. No, to that last point, I mean, I've talked to a few other school leaders now. I actually had a chance to talk to Josh out at, out at Milford as well, and he was on the show. And I think like my hope, I, number one, I have tremendous compassion for schools and school stakeholders for not being able to like dive deep into this conversation because there's so much other work to do. Like, I mean, anybody who's ever worked in a school before knows that you don't just have hours in the day to have these future forward conversations. And something that I've, I've discussed many times on the show is how the innovation timeline in education works a little bit different than it does in like other sectors, right? The planning we do happens in the summer, right? So I would imagine if you were going to have any conversations, they're not happening for two more months. Yeah. Anyways, right. They're going to start June, July, August around that time. And so that's something that I constantly think about. My hope is that we can start to breach those a little bit more across the sector in the summer and come with more, hopefully forward facing type policies, practices, or things we want to try out in the next year so that we can get ahead of it a little bit more, knowing that the to, to the point you've already made, these tools are coming whether we like it or not. The other thing I'm thinking about related to bias that you've mentioned is that, is, that has been absolutely true, right? And I think even folks in the tech sector, sector have named this. Blind spots are created in a lot of these tools because the folks uh, creating them are disproportionately white affluent oftentimes developers. And, you know, I think a lot of these tools have been very forthcoming at some of the blind spots and the biases they've had. Um, I know that even I was looking at a, um, a LinkedIn group called Latinx and AI, and they talked about how if you asked one of the AI image generators to like uh, generate a, lat a Latino, it was, it was populating somebody in a sombrero. So it was just kind of like, again, there's a lot of blind spots and we know that there's a lot more work to do there. I'm curious to, to, to hear more though. I know that at you know, at BLA, I saw that recently there was some type of experience or initiative that you all had created for some of your young people, your eighth graders around exactly this topic. And I was just curious to hear more about that and maybe what, what types of things you, you learned for, you would encourage other schools to, to do based on that and from that experience. Partnerships, uh, Michael and Innovators for Purpose. I've known Michael for probably seven, eight years now. And um, you know, he's a gentleman who's from Florida and took time to enter sort of the space as a black man in tech. And, you know, I've always just really admired what he does because his whole idea is to expose other black and brown students to tech as it's happening right in, in the moment. And I think being able to do that with our young people and give them experience with the tools, you know, not just sort of this is chat GPT or this is tech, but, you know, these are the things and this is how they're made. This is how they're constructed really creates opportunities for our students to have seats at these tables and, and be the people who make sure that you don't see an image of a sombrero when you type in Latino, right? Like, you know, and, and I think that that's really important. My, my students always come back from those sorts of experiences um, really inspired, but I did a, a lot of work with MIT uh, around their, their after school or high school initiatives uh, many years ago. And I, I did some of that work because I spent my Saturdays at MIT and they were putting on all this programming and you literally had people who were coming from California or New Hampshire 
to do a four hour program at MIT on a weekend. And I didn't see kids from Boston public schools. And I didn't see black and Latino kids. And I just think everyone knows that MIT is one of the meccas of innovation and technology. And it's right in our backyards and our kids weren't accessing it. I, I just give flowers to organizations that are really giving students an opportunity to, to access these things. And, and for me, that still remains my biggest takeaway. Uh, kids could learn how to do something uh, or they can be exposed to uh, different things. And I think that was an experience that did both for them, right? And, and I know they're gonna continue to do that work um, and I know that they know they have that as a resource from now on. So that was the goal. It's a partnership that is is now blossoming, right? But this, for me, this was years in the making. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And just for the context for our listeners, my understanding of that experience was that your eighth graders during the February off week, the break, they were able to go to MIT, right? See this exhibit. They were able to have pretty deep conversations around reducing biases in AI through like a multitude of exhibits. And uh, I think a poem may have been involved too. That was kind of the gist of the experience yes. that they got. To yes, they had, they had professionals, they had current researchers, you know, involved in the experience. They got to meet, ask questions um, and, and do some, some real collaborative work around um, biases in AI. Um, so that, you yeah. know, that's really wonderful. To your point or regarding this experience and something you said earlier around partnerships, I mean, truly one of the biggest fears that I know folks have had, and you've named even within your own school community, it sounds like it's come up a lot, is how ChatGPT or chatbots like that may end up outsourcing some of the knowledge or the products that we now ask students to do, namely the, namely the essay. But fundamentally, just in my experience as it really relates to the college application and going process for students, going through and teaching them how to write a personal statement. I think that was valuable, but to be honest, always one of the most valuable things we ever did with students, get them all, throw them on a bus, throw them on a plane, take them to see a school. There was more learning that happened in that two to three hours that may have happened over three to four weeks of doing lessons in the class. And I think it's because to your point, education is experience. Education is those life lived experiences going into places that you've never in your life seen before, absorbing new culture, content experience. And I, I just that I think I don't know how tools like AI, I don't know how any kind of metaverses or whatever that, you know, those things are supposed to be in the future, how that will ever replace the in-person experience of just going into a, a totally different environment that you've never been seen before. If you're if you're a young person, you know, I <laughs> I, I think. Yeah, I, I think a lot about you know, what, what I call a sin of education is that you have to cover a certain amount of material, right? In order to, to help students achieve success. And I believe education happens in, in many different ways. I believe, yes, coverage is important and that, you know, you, you have to, you have to teach uh, young people, but can you tell me what you remember from uh, your favorite classes in high school? I'm, I'm sure it's not all of the content, <laughs> right? Honestly, the only thing I remember from high school is I had an English teacher who asked me a question once. I couldn't even tell you the book, but he asked me a question that blew my mind. He said, why do we exist? Yeah. 
I remember the question. I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember that question. Right? So if if those things are true and we're, we're truly to educate um, young folks, you know, I, I think that those experiences are are really important. And it doesn't mean that you spend every day traveling to college. But I read a ton of college essays. <laughs> um, I, I think college essays, um, like most things, they're, they're a predictor of wealth and exposure um, and schooling experience. And I don't know if that's supposed to be their purpose so if you talk about like leveling the the playing field, of course we have to really talk about sort of what we're teaching all students and how do we do that um, in a way that all students can become good writers, right? But we also have to really think about how we define what a good student looks like. My the college essay that I wrote to get into Northeastern was on Tupac, right? It wasn't. It wasn't groundbreaking. I don't know if I could find it now. It was on pen and paper, I'm sure, uh, or a computer that doesn't exist anymore, right? But I'm sure if I read it or shared it with someone, they wouldn't say, this person's going to be the head of school at BLA. So for me, could could that truly have indicated success? Probably not, <laughs> right? But it it's a one of those measuring tools that we use and I, I think we're starting to have conversations in education around what are the right measure, what are the right measuring sticks that we use to define excellence or future success. And you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but perhaps this throws a wrench into to that conversation as well. No, I I totally agree with you. And it's funny when the pandemic happened, one of the things I had wrote an article about at the time, which I think still holds true and you know, in my opinion, is how the pandemic provided an opportunity for schools to reimagine their admissions policies, in particular around test scores. Like, why do we actually ask schools, why do we ask students to submit SAT or ACT scores to be considered, especially if they don't have, you know, the funding or the time to do these robust prep programs like students at private schools are taking? I think we have now seen that a lot of schools have gone test optional. And in my opinion, it has been a good thing. And it has actually led to a lot of great outcomes for students. And to your point, I wonder if AI is going to be transforming admissions policies even further across the board now, now that even college essays to to a certain extent, if a student can engineer very thoughtful prompts, they're going to be able out of whim to write a really, really stellar uh, essay through a series of just like very uh, thoughtfully crafted prompts, which in some ways, again, still shows their aptitude to do, pr- to probably do the essay as well. So it still kind of is the same skill set yeah. to your point. I'm curious to hear just maybe like my, my last big question for, I know we're, we're running on time here is, if you could maybe wave your, and maybe it's the same answer as the partnership summit. So, and if so, that's okay. Uh, but if you could wave your magic wand, use, use the technology of AI to transform education in some way, what would you do? That's a, that's a deep one. <laughs> I, I think it's my answer to most things in education. I would make sure that all students have equal access and exposure to the technologies so that they have equal opportunities to figure out how to best use it for themselves and for their communities. I mean, I think that that's probably the dream with most things, right? Um, and we, we know there's an opportunity gap. I'm gonna continue to, to say that. 
but there's there's genius in every community there's young people who come up with an idea on how to best use this tool that we haven't thought about um, and, and we really miss out on opportunities to to do that when if we don't provide them with access i think i think a lot about sort of you know this is probably not the best analogy but uh, folks say there's a lot of medicines in rainforests and things of that nature. And when you cut them down, you don't really get a chance to ever get that experience. And I, I think a lot of times in, in a lot of spaces, we cut them down by never giving the opportunity or access to it. Uh, so we never get to experience the inherent genius in some of these communities and in some of these young people that could potentially be life-altering. I just want to make sure that everything that we do, we give folks an opportunity to, to explore those things and not from a deficit lens, right? I'm sure there are things that we are going to have to do in education to sort of plan for chat GPT, chatbots, AI technology, and we should do those things and we should also think about and give people opportunities to be innovative with those things because i'm sure that this is the future and we're going to learn a lot from it thanks for listening to the ai education conversation give a follow rate and review wherever you listen for all show notes and to share your thoughts on today's episode check out the ai at convo on twitter see you next time